Amen. Good morning, fellowship. Good to be with you guys. Good to see you. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. For those of you I don't know, my name is Rob. I'm one of two pastors here that do the teaching primarily, along with Lloyd Shadrach. We have two campuses here and at Brentwood. So while I'm here, Lloyd is at our Brentwood campus and vice versa. We're in the same series. We're working through the Sermon on the Mount, three of the most marvelous chapters of the whole Bible of literature. And as I was preparing uh, this morning, I thought, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, who is the greatest teacher who ever taught, unlocks some of the deepest truths the human mind can explore. And he invites us into a new way of living. What we have in the short passage that we're going to study this morning is, I believe, one of the most incredible invitations you could ever hear. And I know preachers are given to hyperbole, but I think that, that it is truly one of the most incredible invitations you will ever hear. Jonathan Pennington, who wrote a marvelous commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, said this about these few verses. They are some of the most encouraging and hope-giving verses of the whole New Testament. N.T. Wright, preeminent New Testament scholar, described this section as one of the most sparkling and generous sets of promises anywhere in the Bible. Here's what I'd say about it this morning. If your view of God is like most Christians, the opportunity this morning through this text is for a weight to be lifted off of you, for the way that you think about God to be transformed in a beautiful way, in a life-giving way. And Although I don't have to say this because I think it's apparent I want to say this, my preaching cannot transform anybody or anything. God's word does the transformation. So what happens when I teach or Lloyd teaches or even when you read the Bible on your own or you're talking about it in a small group or any context where God's word is involved, what's happening is the same spirit who authored the words and spoke them through human author is now re-speaking those same words because that same spirit lives in you if you're a believer of Jesus Christ. And so that's why we say this is the living word of God for us today. And words work, you know, they don't just inform, they transform, they change things. And so the word is gonna be moving and working in us and among us this morning. I believe that and that's what I've been praying for. So with that said, we come to our text this morning, Matthew 7, 7 to 11, just a few short verses, but so much here. I'll read them, put them on the screen, and you can follow along. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? This is the living word of God for us today. Before we dig deeper into the verses, I want to remind you of who Jesus is. He is God himself, you know, he's the son of God. Have you ever thought about what it means for Jesus to be the son of God? You have God the Father, God the Son, God of the Holy Spirit. What does it mean for Jesus to be the son of God? Well, it means that 
He is God, is the second person of the Trinity, but he exists in God, he exists as God in a way that is distinct from the Father and from the Spirit. They are one, yes, but they are also three. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. Neither the Father nor the Son is the Spirit, and yet they are all one. Is everything clear? (laughs) Here's where I'm going with this. Jesus has eternally existed as the Son of God. In other words, he has eternally existed in a perfect relationship of love with God the Father. Jesus did not become the Son of God when he was born in Bethlehem. That's when he was incarnated. The Son of God was incarnated into flesh, but he did not become the Son. He was and is and always will be the Son of God. The title, Son of God, describes his unique relationship with God the Father. Theirs is a father-son relationship of such beauty and power and perfection that the greatest parent-child relationship our world has ever seen is but a dim shadow. All that to say when Jesus describes God as a father, which he does in this passage. He knows what he is talking about. From eternity past, Jesus has personally and continually experienced the love of God as perfect father. He knows the personality and the character of God the Father. So when we hear this passage and we think, what's the big deal? Or maybe we even have some objections in our hearts, like, I'm not sure my life works that way. Ask and you shall receive. Or God's given me some things that I don't feel like were good gifts, et cetera, et cetera. When all these objections or or even this callousness comes into your heart and, and all that's understandable, don't forget who it is that is teaching us. The Son of God. Now, let's dive in. The text naturally breaks up into three clear sections. There is, in the first couple of verses, an invitation. There is, after that, an illustration. And then finally, in the final verse, there is an implication. You knew I had to go with I, right? I worked hard for my alliteration. (laughs) Invitation, illustration, implication, that's where we're going. Wanted to see how, uh, you you could see how that flows, and now we're going to jump right in. Let's, Let's start with the invitation, the first two verses. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. Everyone who asks receives, etc. We'll get get to verse eight more in depth in a minute. What you have in verse seven is you have three imperative verbs. Remember, imperative is the command form. Ask, seek, knock. Now, the imperative form is used for commands. Like if you're talking to your child and you say, go to your room or clean your room or whatever it is, come to dinner. But it's also used as an invitation. If you think about that, if you invite somebody to a party, you use the imperative form, come to my party. And you understand at that moment, you don't have power to make them come. It's not like there's a punishment if they don't come. It's an invitation. And I think what we have here are three invitations. We ask, 
we seek, we knock. This is the invitation that Jesus is giving. And they're followed by three corresponding promises, if you will. So when you ask, it'll be given. When you seek, you'll find. When you knock, it'll be open. I love the parallelism that Jesus is, is introducing here. It's such a memorable passage. You know, ask and you'll be given it. Seek, you'll find it. Knock and it'll be open. Of course, it's easy to kind of understand this in our minds. Now, some commentators have said, if you drill down on the verbs, you'll notice they're in the present active tense, which means you keep on asking. And that is absolutely true. It's this idea of don't just ask once, be persistent, be continual. And I don't want to take away from that point. It's an important point. And yet I also want to say this, the emphasis of this passage is not primarily on our persistence, but rather on the Father's openness. In other words, what, um, what God wants to do in us through these texts is to just amaze us with how profound it is that the creator of the universe would be a father to us. And he would invite us in and say, ask, seek, knock. It's like I, the creator God, you know, the, the commander of all the angel armies, I want to hear from you. This is a familiar passage to many, but I hope that your familiarity this morning will not diminish how remarkable it is. It is simple, it is profound, it is mind-bending. The fact that God desires us to come to him and ask him for things, that he's eager for us to engage him in this way is profound. And, and I want to go ahead and address a couple of objections because I know for many of us, these verses seem a little too good to be true. I mean, ask and it'll be given, seek and you'll find, knock will be open. How does that actually work? So two common objections to these verses. Objection number one, we often think, well, if God already knows what I want, he even knows what I'm going to say, why bother? Maybe a better way to state this objection is, does our asking make any difference? You know, does prayer change anything? Does it actually do anything at all? Isn't God sovereign? Isn't God going to do what God's going to do? I mean, that, that's, that's the objection. Now, this is tricky because that's absolutely true. God is sovereign and God knows. He knows exactly what you're going to ask and he's going to do what he's going to do. Like the sovereignty of God here. And I want you to sort of feel this tension. If God is sovereign, how can prayer change things? How does that actually matter? Now, here's what I would make of this. God knows everything and God's sovereign and yet he invites us to engage him. He invites us to ask and it even seems that somehow he makes his answer dependent on our asking. Now, this is a mystery that I cannot fully explain. It's a little like the mystery of the Trinity. Okay, they're distinct, but they're united. Three in one, I want you to hold a similar tension. God is sovereign and prayer makes a difference. Prayer changes things. These, I believe, are both true. Here's what I make of this. God's inviting us into his counsel which is remarkable. He's treating us like true sons and daughters. Think about that. A father calls a, a son in or a daughter and says, listen, I'm thinking about something. I want to know what you think about this. I did this last night you know, with our family and we were thinking about what are we going to do for dinner? 
you know, and Jody was like, I don't think I'm going to be cooking today. I'm like, great. Because it sounds, I don't mean that. It sounded like I didn't want her to cook. <laughs> she was in the last service, not this one, so y'all don't tell her. But we, we, I went and I, I asked my kids, I said, well, what, what do you want? What do you want? Now, the, that was a disaster because they all wanted different things, you know, and I had to sort of like meet in the middle. But the idea is God interacts with us as a true father. Amazingly, I believe this sentence is true. God works through our requests and petitions to accomplish his design on the earth. So I came across this quote by Scott McKnight, a New Testament scholar that I thought was really helpful for me to hold this tension. He writes this, I believe the broad sweep of the way in which prayer works in the Bible teaches us that God in his sovereignty, check this out, has established a kind of contingency in the universe and that God genuinely interacts with humans who pray in such a way that the universe changes as a result of our prayers. That is amazing to think about. God in his sovereignty has designed the universe with this little contingency, and that's where our prayers enter in and actually change things. I think that that's a great way to understand what the Bible teaches about prayer, and I know it's hard to hold these things intention. That's what we're called to do theologically. Here's how I'd say it. What a marvelous way for God to design the world. I think this is evidence that he is not just a kind and wise God, but he is a kind and wise father. He is the type of God who would invite his kids in and say, ask me and seek from me and knock and the world's going to change when you do. If that's not motivation to pray, I don't know what is. And you know, I'm trying to motivate myself too because I struggle with prayer just like any of y'all do. But that's incredible. Okay, second objection. These verses actually don't seem to work in real life. In other words, I don't get what I ask for. I don't find what I'm seeking. And often nothing's open to me, you know? Or maybe, maybe to be fair, you'd say sometimes it works, but it just seems more random than anything else. There are definitely times that I pray for things and either God doesn't seem to answer or even worse, he does the exact opposite of what I asked him for. And I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I know that's gotta be true of just about everybody in the room. You know, you have asked God for things and he did the exact opposite of what you prayed for. So what are we to make of this? Let's look a little closer at verse eight. For everyone who asks receives and the one uh, who seeks finds and the one who knocks will be open. It occurred to me this week as I pondered this little dilemma, it occurred to me that maybe I actually receive more than what I'm asking for. Even when God says no to me, maybe I'm receiving something more than what I asked for. It occurred to me that when God says no to me, he doesn't give me what, what I'm seeking, that maybe I'm actually finding some, something deeper and truer and better for me than what I was seeking. And it occurred to me that when I knock on some door and the door seems to be shut, that actually what is open to me is a more profound opportunity or experience than what I even knew to knock on. Let me give you an illustration. When my daughters ask me for something, I try to say yes as often as I can because I know there are plenty of times I need to say no. And I want them to understand the heart of their father is for them. So when I say no, I have a good reason. 
And of course, I don't always do this well, but I, I try to tell them the reason. And do they understand the reason? Most times they don't. But here's the thing that happens. When they knock on the door and say, dad, can I have this? Or dad, can I do this? Or have extra screen time or stay up later or whatever it is. And when I do say no, the door that's actually open for them is an opportunity for them to trust me a little bit more. Now, I know that's not a full answer to the objection of like, well, why doesn't God give me the things I ask for always, et cetera? But that prepares our minds for how Jesus answers the objection. He answers it with an illustration in the following verses. Which, of, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks him for a fish, will give him a serpent? Let me just... Pause there for a minute. Jesus was teaching in the Galilee region of Israel. So, you know, Israel, Jerusalem's in the southern region, largely down there. It's dry, arid, desert climate for the most part. Up north near the Sea of Galilee, which is actually a very large lake, it's more lush, it's more green, it's more beautiful. And so Jesus was primarily teaching. In fact, we know the Sermon on the Mount was taught right in this area overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And so when he, and he uses these illustrations of bread and fish, his audience... That, that was their diet. In that region, they would eat bread and fish morning, noon, and night. It's a fertile area, so they'd grow lots of grains, make that into bread, and then they'd fish and they'd get... And we have this idea, maybe they're eating all kinds of other meat, and you know, lamb and, and, and bulls and all these other things were saved for the very highest days. And these were agrarian poor people. They would have just been eating bread and fish. And so Jesus is using something they're very familiar with. And then he's also saying, you also know what it's like for kids to ask you for food because kids get hungry. I mean, literally from the moment they're born, they're like screaming and crying for, to be filled, you know? And so Jesus starts with this very common food and very common experience of kids asking for food. And then he puts a funny twist on it. And I do believe this is meant to be funny. He's saying, can you imagine if your kid is hungry and you just go and pick up a stone from the ground and all oh, this kind of looks like a loaf of bread here, this ought to do. Or your child is hungry and, and a father you know, reaches in a hole in the ground and pulls out a snake and puts it on the high chair and says, bon appetit. <laughs> That's the idea that Jesus is going after here. It's so ridiculous that it's funny. And so he's saying, you as fathers and mothers, you instinctively care for your children you respond to them in good ways because God made you to do that because he made you in his image. He, he made you just a little bit like himself and he's using this illustration to bring home what he's about to say, the implication of this lesson, which is in the final verse. If you then, this is like the therefore statement, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. Uh, interesting, this word evil. It's not a mistranslation. It is a strong word in English. It was a strong word in, in Greek that it was translated over. Jesus is not condemning them. Like He's not shaming them at this moment. He's not saying, you know, of all the people in the world, those of you that are listening to my words right now, you guys are the most evil. He's calling out something in the human nature. He's essentially saying, even you, who you know are, are good fathers and mothers for the most part, you're essentially evil compared to how amazingly great the Father is in heaven. He's saying, even the best parents on earth are, are poor and, and, and evil compared to the perfect love of the Father. 
Now, every human parent has the same fatal flaw, the selfishness of the sinful nature. What's interesting about this is the love of a parent for a child is probably the closest thing a human being ever experiences to the love of God. Those of you who are parents know what I'm talking about. There's this extraordinary intensity with which we care for our children. I mean, whether they're obeying us or whether they're rebelling against us, your heart is always with your child. You just can't hardly help it. Yet even in the middle of what seems to us as pure, unselfish love, if you are self-aware enough, you will find the seed of selfishness. When our children are demanding, we get impatient. When they return our love with indifference or rebellion, as they do, we get hurt. We get angry. We have thoughts either out loud or in the quietness of our own hearts. I deserve more than that. Even worse, we depend upon our children to fill something in us rather than being truly free to give ourselves away to them. Jesus is saying, you know, you, you have a bit of evil even in your best love. But it is not this way with your father in heaven. There is no selfish seed in his love. It is not in his nature or character to be anything less than a whole and complete father to you. And Jesus knows what he is talking about. You might think of it this way. It is as impossible for God to be an imperfect father to you as it is for you to be a perfect father or mother to your children. Scott McKnight poses this very good question. How much do we not have because we do not ask and we do not ask because we do not believe God is good? Jesus is saying, here's how you know the goodness of God. He only gives good things to those who ask him. Now, some of you are thinking, that's not my experience. Good things are not always what we think we want. We know this when parenting our own kids. If I let them, my kids would get sick on candy and ice cream every single night of the week. They would stay up till midnight watching movies and all these kinds of things. What we think we want is not always a good gift, but your Father in heaven knows what is best. Jesus is saying good gifts are the only kinds of gifts the Father is capable of giving. So when we come to him as children and we ask him for something, and he does the exact opposite of what we ask for, there is one certainty of the situation. The one certainty is that you have not received a bad gift from your Father in heaven. Your circumstances are never the result 
of God being indifferent or hatred, hating you. They're never the result of those things. John Stott was a super smart man, Bible guy, and he said it this way. Perhaps we could put the matter in this way. Being good, our heavenly father gives only good gifts to his children. Being wise as well, he knows which gifts are good and which are not. So then if we ask for good things, he grants them. If we ask for things which are not good, either not good in themselves or not good for us or for others, directly or indirectly, immediately or ultimately, he denies them. And only he knows the difference. We can thank God he answers prayer and we can thank God he also sometimes denies our requests. That reminded me of another quote, one of my favorite quotes from Tim Keller. I've used it before. It's worth restating. God will only give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he knows. So how would we sum up this passage, this marvelous invitation? I I might say it this way. These verses teach us how the Son of God experiences God the Father. It's like Jesus is pulling back the curtain saying, let me give you some insight. I, I, I know this person, this, this father. I've known him as a good father from eternity past, and I want to teach you his character, his heart for you. Jesus is inviting his disciples to see the world around them differently, to see the world around them as he, Jesus, sees the world, as a place saturated by the love of a father who has only good things for his children, a father who works all things together for their good. And so seeing the world this way will change your prayer life. In fact, it will change your entire life, but it will start with your prayer life. I believe your prayer life will be transformed simply by believing that God is a good father for you. Here at Fellowship, we talk a lot about the heart. You know, if you're new with us, the heart is not just your emotions. In the Bible, it's the core of who you are internally, your thoughts, your choices, emotions, desires. It's all of you inside. And so what Jesus often does is he starts with truth. You know, he renews our mind. Let me go with a different color to show up a little bit better. And then he's going to say, if you believe this, it'll change the way you feel about some things in your life. It'll create new desires in you. And then this pathway will enable you to make new choices. That's what this text is doing. Believe God is Father and allow that belief, that thought, that faith to then transform how you feel about the situations around you, your desire for what you really want, and then make a new choice. So what's the new choice that God is calling us to in this text? I think it's simply this. Are we going to take Jesus at his word or not? Are we going to believe what he's saying about God being a good father? Now, before you answer that, let me just remind you of one more thing. Jesus knows suffering. So it's not like he's saying, look, he's always been a good, generous father to me. You know, it's almost like in my mind, I can imagine some people think of that as maybe like some um, privileged but naive prince 
who doesn't know how the real world outside the castle actually functions. No, no, no. Jesus was poor. Jesus was lonely. Jesus lost people he loved and his friends betrayed him. And in other words, he experienced all the brokenheartedness in the world that you have experienced and then some. So through all of that, right up into the the last agonizing breath that he takes, terrible, awful, painful death, he's able to say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And this is what I want you to know. And this is where I think this sermon just will, will explode. I'm praying that it will. Is because in that moment in time when Jesus obeyed the Father, the good Father, and trusted his Father to the bitter end, it was that moment in time that changed your relationship with the Father. Because Jesus fully obeyed and trusted the Father like you haven't, like you can't even, He earned for you his relationship with the Father. Through faith in Christ and his work for you, you become a full son and a full daughter. You actually get to have that amazing, perfect, beautiful unity of father-child relationship that Jesus has experienced from eternity past. So in the Sermon on the Mount, which of course is, you know, two or three years before he dies on the cross, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was anticipating the work that he was going to do on the cross. And he's saying, listen, I'm going to fully reconcile you as true sons and daughters so that you can know the Father as I know the Father. So for all of you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are as deeply in the love of God the Father as the Son is in the love of God the Father. Jesus' relationship with the Father has become your relationship with the Father. Here's what that means. When God looks on you, if if you are in Christ, he looks at you with the same affection and satisfaction and delight as when he looks on his son, Jesus. And you can't lose that. You can't sin enough to lose that because you couldn't be righteous enough to earn it. It's just yours. It's imputed on you through faith. It's placed on you. It is. It just is. I was just contemplating this. On the one level, this is just this, this is the gospel. It's just simple. Like you've heard this before. On another level, have you ever thought of the gospel quite like this, connected to these verses? And I hadn't, and my mind just started filling. And sometimes we you know when you teach this happens, you just get overcome. And, and I, wrote, I wrote this down. I said, the whole Bible could be summed up as the story of the Son of God from all eternity past experiencing such unity and relational perfection with his Father that he was willing to temporarily lose it so that we could gain it with him for all eternity future. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And what does this mean for us, really, practically? I I, want to read you one more quote, and and then we'll wrap up. Um, I want to read to you the way Ray Ortland put it, pastor up in Nashville, Emmanuel Nashville. If God is for you, then all that God is doing in the world today, right down to the atoms, He is bending reality around to your eternal advantage. 
you are walking through a world tilted in your favor because God says, this is going to end well for you. And so everything you're going to experience in the entire length of your life will only take you more deeply, more meaningfully, more tenderly into the love of God. That is reality for those who are in Christ. There's got to be one amen in the room. Okay, there, that's, that's, that was a few. So, so here's how I want to wrap up. If you have never known God as Father this way, you know, maybe you've only thought of, well, God, God's Father because he created me. And, and in a sense, aren't we all children of God? Listen, through faith in Christ, your relationship to the Father is profoundly transformed. If you've never known God as Father, come to Jesus. And like literally, I mean, literally in this moment, you know, I'm not gonna ask you to come down or raise a hand or whatever. But literally, all it is is this, is saying, Jesus, I want the relationship with the Father that you have with the Father. I don't know that I have it. And I know I can't earn it because I'm a sinful person. And so I'm trusting that the work you did for me on the cross is enough to gain for me the relationship that you have with your Father. I believe it and I trust it. Your relationship's transformed. The Spirit of God indwells you. He confirms the word of God as true in you, even in this moment. For all of us, whether you put your faith in Christ this morning for the first time or whether it's months or weeks or years ago, I want you to dare to see reality the way Jesus sees reality through the eyes of a son or a daughter of God who now has nothing to fear. Let this way of seeing the world change your prayer life and change your entire life. And so we are going to respond with this. Jesus, show us what it means to follow you. We say this every single week. We put a slide like this on the screen. Look how simple it is for us this time. The band's gonna come up and they're gonna lead us into this. It's just come to the Father as a child. Like that's exactly what this text says and we're gonna do exactly what the text says. I, I couldn't think of a better way to just say, look, come to the Father as a child, which by the way, is how Jesus comes to the Father. Come to the Father the same way Jesus comes to the Father. Ask, seek, knock. 